0: And so my father goes to light a match, and of course, this wood won't light. And at some point, my brother says, why don't we dump some gas on it? And my father starts to say, I don't think that's a good, and my uncle says, that's a great idea. What's the worst that could happen?
1: Welcome to Stories from the Stage, produced by World Channel and GBH Boston, in partnership with Tell & Act. In each episode, multicultural people tell stories in front of a live studio audience. I am Patricia
2: Alvarado-Núñez. And I'm Liz Chang. We help create stories from the stage. Today, we have two raucous stories about childhood and surviving it. Two stories told by one storyteller.
1: I'm Suzanne
0: Schmidt, and I grew up in New York to a very large Italian family and I now live in Burlington, Vermont with my two sons
2: and I work as a therapist. Suzanne comes from a family of storytellers. I can remember as a kid uh, dinner would finish
0: and we would just sit around the table and everyone would tell stories for a couple of hours until my grandfather would decide when the best story had been told.
2: He would pull his napkin out of his shirt, throw it on the table, and it was like, okay, I guess we're done. So family and stories have become Suzanne's specialties. Here's her first story.
0: In the summer of 1972, my family and my best friend's family took an extreme camping trip on the shores of Long Island. And it takes us an entire day to get to our campsite. And by the end of that day, we were completely set up. And for the next two weeks, it was like Swiss Family Robinson meets Lord of the Flies. (laughs) Now my father and my Uncle Bill chose not to go to the designated camping area because there was no adventure in that. And so we were in a camping area where there were no rules. At night we would fall into our smelly tents and we would just gently fall asleep to the sound of our parents talking around the campfire, punctuated with these bursts of hysterical laughter. It was the kind of laughter you only hear when you're with people that you truly love and they're kind of drunk. (laughs) So the thing that we didn't know was that right around the corner from this remote peninsula was a bar. And so every night before the campfire, the fathers would look at the mothers and say, we're going to go blow the gas out of the lines. And they would jump in the boats and take off. And they'd come back an hour later really happy to see us. So on this one particular night, the mothers looked at the fathers and said, we are going to go blow the gas out of the lines. You will be in charge of the children. Now I will tell you that all six of the children are still alive and that our fathers were wonderful fathers. And like most fathers in the 60s and 70s, they had this little voice in their head when they were left alone with the children that said, don't do this, it could end badly. (laughs) But when you left my father and my Uncle Bill together in charge of the children, that sentence changed to the question, what's the worst that could happen? And so the mothers go off to blow the gas out of the lines, and they look at the children and say, you will collect the wood. And we say, yes, fathers, because we know something incredible is going to happen. And we scurry off down the beach, and we come back with the two kinds of wood that children can collect, which are tiny little twigs that burn in 11 seconds, and giant water-soaked tree trunks. And we throw them into the fire pit. And the fathers look at them and they say, that is wonderful. Because they don't want to shame or judge us. That was really the mother's territory and they left that to them. And so my father goes to light a match and of course this wood won't light. And at some point my brother says, why don't we dump some gas on it? And my father starts to say, I don't think that's a good. And my uncle says, that's a great idea. What's the worst that could happen? So we dump a couple of gallons of fuel into the fire pit. My father lights a match, he throws it in, nothing happens. My brother starts to say, I think we need more. And my father leans over the fire pit. And in that moment, an explosion licks up to the heavens. There are flames 30 feet in the air. There's a mushroom cloud that forms that (laughs) blows him back and singes off his eyebrows. My uncle Bill runs over and says, that was close. My father says, I know, right? And when they compose themselves and they look up and they look to the children to see if we're all right and the children are screaming at this point, this is great! We love the fathers! Now you couldn't actually see this blast from space, but you could see it from the shores of Connecticut because the Bridgeport police contact the Harbor Patrol and dispatch every Coast Guard boat in the Long Island Sound toward the peninsula. The other place you could see this blast was the bar. Where the mothers were blowing the gas out of the lines. And so simultaneously, the Coast Guard and the mothers are now charging towards the beachhead. And I can see my mother's face, and it's that look that's very familiar for mothers in the 60s and 70s, which on one end is that deep, deep concern for your children, and on the other side is just this unbelievable rage. I looked at my father and I said, I have always loved you. And I am gonna miss you so Much. The Coast Guard gets to the beach, they set up a perimeter, the mothers break through. Instantly, the mothers banish us to our smelly tent. And we shuffle off once again, saying, we love the fathers. We can hear the negotiation from the tent. The Coast Guard agrees to let us spend the night if we promise to move to the designated camping area the next day. The mothers agree that they won't kill the fathers in their sleep. And the fathers agree that the fatal flaw in their plan was allowing the children to collect the wood. (laughs) So the next morning, two mothers, two fathers, and six children load 4,000 pounds of camping gear back into the boats, and we head to the designated camping area. And we spend the rest of our vacation waiting on the shore with the other children a half an hour to go in and swim after lunch. And at night, sitting around the tiniest of fires, encased in a Coast Guard-approved metal ring, Looking longingly at the fathers thinking, will the mothers ever get desperate enough to leave us alone with you again? (laughs) The last adventure that we had together with the fathers was 10 years ago. My uncle had passed away after a very long struggle with lung cancer. And seven weeks later, when my father passed away completely unexpectedly, the children determined that his cause of death was likely a broken heart. We had my uncle Bill Cremated in Florida where he had gone to live with my best friend. My father was cremated in Vermont where he had come to live with me And we brought their ashes back to Long Island We placed them together in a box and we brought them down to the Long Island Sound We doused it with lighter fluid We set them on fire and we sent them out We hadn't really accounted for the tide or the wind And so as the flaming box of our fathers picked up speed, it made its way past the Coast Guard station. (laughs) As the Coast Guard went to jump in their boats to investigate, on the second pass around, the box got swamped. And as they started to sink slowly down before the Coast Guard could get to it, I swear I could hear my father say, that was close. (laughs) (laughs) My Uncle Bill say, I know, right? And for that one brief moment, our grief just parted because we knew whatever the adventure was, they were gonna be there together. And I know that no one could hear that, but if you were in a mile of the shoreline that day, you could absolutely hear the triumphant cries of the six children on the shore screaming, we love the fathers! Thank you.
1: Suzanne Schmidt, join us now. Suzanne, I got to say, what a hoot, and such a poignant celebration of family life.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. The way you describe that, what a hoot, that's how people would describe my family when I was growing up. There was always some kind of adventure and celebration. There was just a lot of joy in my family.
1: I find myself sometimes trying to remember things that people said and how do you remember so much.
0: Yeah, well, there was a lot being said in my family. My family were immigrants, German on one side, Italian on the other side. And so there was just a lot of verbose conversation. And so my memories are so tied together with things that people would say, expressions that they had, or just
1: how they would describe a situation. You know, I have seen you perform a few times, and it feels like you have the audience in the palm of your hand, and that's pure power. How much is the energy of your audience becoming a part of your storytelling?
0: It's a big part. I will say during the last year and a half, I have done some storytelling, but it is very different to not have an audience in the room. When I'm in the room with a group, the best kind of feedback I can ever get as a storyteller is the person that comes up after you and doesn't say, oh, I liked your story or that was great, but says, wow, your story reminds me of my grandmother or my father or this vacation that we took that went horribly wrong. And that's wonderful feedback because really what you're trying to do is to connect and to help folks connect to you, to help folks connect to each other and to help folks connect to themselves.
1: So in in your stories, definitely, you know, we, we feel that connection you had with your family. And are your stories a way to honor them, to remember them forever? Because now we all carry the stories with us, the ones who listen.
0: Absolutely. I think there isn't really a better way to honor someone who's no longer with us than to tell their story and to tell the story of how their lives impacted you. And again, I had a lot of very colorful characters in my family, all of whom were storytellers. And so I think I think they would be really pleased to hear stories about how impactful they were in my life.
1: Do you feel that, you know, the way your father and your mother parent you, could you imagine you having a camping trip like that one (laughs) with your sons and their cousins?
0: (laughs) That's a great question. Um, You know, you always think about your own parenting in the context of, wow, I never want to do what my parents did to me in some ways. I've heard that a lot from parents, but my parents were very adventurous. And so a lot of my parenting, when I'm When my kids approach me and say, mom, like, you know, how fun would it be to take the garage door off and attach it to the back of a boat and then stand on it and get, you know, most parents would say, oh, no, that's not safe. And I always think about, what would my father do? My father would say, yeah, let's do that. That would be great.
1: And I love the what can go wrong, right?
0: Right. What's (laughs) the worst that could happen is, I think, a great line as a parent. As opposed to always coming from that place of, no, 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 you can't do that. That's not safe. And just, well, what's the worst that could happen?
2: Coming up, another story from Suzanne's childhood. This one involving a Janis Joplin lookalike and a homemade Olympic luge run. Okay, we're back with Suzanne Schmidt and her next family story. This one starts with a microphone check.
0: One, two, three, four. That's my story, thanks very much. (laughs) Um, Growing up, my family was just shy of being normal. (laughs) And this fact became very clear to me in the summer that I turned six, when my grandparents decided that they would hire a housekeeper. Now the odd thing about this was that we were not a wealthy family and we were not the kind of family that had housekeepers. But I was really excited about it because the neighbors had a housekeeper and their housekeeper looked like Jackie Kennedy. She had this brown dippity-doo hair, she had this beautiful pillbox hat and this pencil skirt and I thought this could make us look so much more normal in the community. (laughs) And so then, all of a sudden, there was Mary. Now, Mary was her real name, but she liked to be called Janice. And we kind of gave that to her. Because Janice looked a lot like Janice Joplin. She wore these long, flowing, hippie clothes, as my grandmother would call them. And she had this strawberry blonde, curly hair. And she would sit on the back porch while my grandmother was cleaning inside. And smoke cigarettes and sing Janice Joplin songs. And so I would go off to kindergarten in the morning and I would learn to sit compliantly on my carpet square and speak when I was spoken to. And then in the afternoons, I would come home and I would hang out with Janice Joplin. It was kind of perfect. Janice taught me everything I needed to know being a six year old in the 60s. She taught me how to blow liquid out of your nose and that it should be some kind of effervescent liquid, like beer or ginger ale. She taught me that you could walk a cat on a string if you were willing to let the cat walk behind you and just kind of tug at it repeatedly. She taught me that one well-placed artificial fart under the arm could take the place of a thousand words. And so, quickly, fall turned to winter and we settled into the Olympics. And now in 1968, the Olympics were all about Jean-Claude Keeley and his manly unitard. (laughs) and the four gold medals that he had won. But for us, for my family, it was about the epic battle in the luge between the East Germans and the Italians. And we were glued to that one little black and white TV screen. And when it was all over, it was a huge disappointment. And so Janice decided that in honor of the Olympics, that we would recreate an event on my grandparents' banister. And so when the grown-ups went out, now we had been down the banister on many occasions and it was a tough course. There was kind of a giant slalom at the front and then a 180 degree hairpin turn and then it plateaued a little bit and then it just dropped into a very steep downhill section. But we had always been down on our bottoms, kind of heads up. And Janice decided that if we strapped a pillow to our belly and we went down head first, that we could gain a lot of velocity without losing any maneuverability. She also decided that if we took one of those giant industrial size laundry baskets, the canvas kind that had casters on the bottom, and we placed it at the bottom of the run, we could drop into it and skid across the foyer, (laughs) thus creating a bobsled. And so this event now is referred to as the luge bob. And so my cousin was the first up. We strapped on the pillow, and he dropped in. And he was kind of cautious, so he barely made it around the turn. He kind of slowed down in the plateau. But he was able to make it all the way down to the bottom. He hit the laundry basket, and he skidded a couple of feet. And we were like, "Okay, that's the time to beat. My brother was up next, and like most older brothers, was just wildly out of control. He strapped the pillow on, he came down the first section, he went right around the turn, he careened off, smashing his head into the plaster wall, and then spent the rest of the afternoon crying in the corner, feeling the agony of defeat. (laughs) And then it was my turn, and I was terrified, but I adored Janice. Janice was really the first girl in my family. All of my cousins and my brother were all boys. It was like being raised by Navy SEALs. And Janice walked me to the top of the stairs, and she strapped on the pillow, and she touched my hand, and she said, it's all you, kid. And I tucked... And I dropped in, and I came down as fast as I possibly could. I came around the corner. I was moving so fast. My head was spinning back and forth. I hit the bottom section. I landed squarely into the laundry basket across the front foyer. She opened the door, out the door, across the street, sticking the landing two inches from Mrs. Tilly's frozen bird bath. My brother tried to challenge the judge and say, I think Janice pushed her out, but the cat was not hearing about it. Later that afternoon, I was awarded the gold medal, which was a chocolate gold coin on the end of a repurposed cat leash. It was the proudest moment of my life. Winter turned to spring and I came home from school one day and my grandmother said, come and sit down, I need to talk to you. And she said, Janice is leaving. And I said, what do you mean she's leaving? And she said, well, she's going back to live with her family. And I said, but we're her family. And I could tell by the look on her face that it was really kind of complicated. And so I said, well, but I don't understand. And she said, well, Janice is ready to go back and be with her family. I fell asleep that night just feeling for the first time what it meant to really lose someone that you loved. Janice was my best friend. In truth, she was my only friend. The next morning, we stood at the bottom of the Luge Bob run. (laughs) Janice was packed and ready to go. And I wanted to say to her, I love you. What other family could possibly be better than this collection of weirdos? And all I could say was, please don't go. She looked at me and she patted me on the head She stuck her hand inside of her shirt, and she laid off one of the most perfect artificial farts under the arm I've ever heard. And I watched her get in the car, and she drove down the street with the window open, and I could hear her singing, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? I looked at my grandma and said, we have a Mercedes? My grandma was like, no, we have a Volkswagen, but it didn't matter to Janice. It took me years before my family was finally willing to come clean. Janice wasn't a housekeeper. Janice was a psychiatric patient at the state hospital where my grandfather worked. And when my grandfather found her in the ward one day and the nurses said, we need you to give her more medication, she's delusional. She thinks she's Janice Joplin. My grandfather said, No, I'm not going to give her more medication. Nobody gets better from being in the hospital. Nobody gets better from more medication. She needs to come back to the community. She needs to live in a family. She needs to remember what it means to love and to be loved. And so she came to live at our house. I have no idea what became of Janice. I know she never came back to the hospital, but I know that because of her, I became a musician and a mental health counselor and the youngest person to ever win a gold medal in the luge bob.
2: Wow, Suzanne, another fabulous story. What a childhood you had, so full of adventure.
0: It was. I look back sometimes and I think, wow, I don't think I could have asked for a better childhood in some ways, and every family has their situations. Um, But my family really had an openness about how they would view the world. And that was a tremendous way to grow up.
2: Were you in the emergency room a lot?
0: Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, um, my grandfather was a doctor. And so anytime we would get hurt, we would go to my grandfather. So we managed to stay out of the emergency room. But the sort of family joke is my grandfather was a doctor who specialized in childhood stupidity. (laughs)
2: Very convenient and helpful, I know. I know you said in the story that you don't really know what happened to Janice, but I imagine you've wondered about that over the years. Oh, yeah. I wonder about
0: that all the time. I mean, what I know is that she never came back to the hospital, which is a good thing. But I do often, I mean, for years when I would be in groups of people, you know, I, I always sort of keep one eye open for her, and always kind of secretly hoped that at some point she would just pop up and say, hi, do you remember me?
2: What was it about her that moved you so much that made you want to seek a career in mental health counseling?
0: I think it was her openness, to me especially. She really was so much more than just someone that was a patient at the hospital. I mean, she really was someone that I felt like was my friend, that I could trust, that she could trust me. And I think when I was younger, I thought about what are the skills that you would have to have for somebody to trust you? And that was a really important piece of what brought me to the mental health field.
2: Your stories are so wonderfully powerful. And I know you learned about the art of storytelling from your own colorful family but your job is to listen to other people's stories, especially people in trouble. During these therapy sessions, do you think listening to your clients have helped you in your own storytelling?
0: Oh, sure. I think listening to anyone helps you in storytelling. I think no matter what situation, if you can really deeply listen to someone else's experience, it helps you to make sense of your own experience. And certainly while as a Clinician, I would never share anything that would happen outside of the therapy space. I do, when I work with clients now, say, you know, what would happen if you told that story beyond the space that we're sitting in and really help people to think about the power of being able to share your voice and your experience?
2: Is it an act of healing to tell a story or to listen to one or both? I think both. I think one of the things I really
0: appreciate about storytelling is no matter what the story is that's being told, someone in the room is going to connect with that story. And so when I'm telling a story, I always think about there's someone in this room that hears what I'm saying in a very deep way or differently than the other folks in the room might. And as a story listener, I'm always listening for those pieces that resonate with me. And so even if the storyteller is so different than I am politically, where they live, what their belief system is, there's always something that I can connect to
2: another person on. You know, I have to tell you, both my mother and my husband were both psychotherapists. So I've been getting therapy my entire life, like it or not. Uh, has has this helped your family in terms of you helping your sons and helping your other family members?
0: <laughs> I think it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> my, My sons would say this is the worst possible job a parent could have. That's what they said when they were younger. And then as they got older and I became more of a storyteller, now they are very convinced that the combination of me being a therapist and also being a storyteller is the absolute worst thing a parent can be, because I get up and talk about things that have happened, and sometimes they're a little horrified by that. But I do always ask them before I talk about them on stage, are you okay with me talking about this? And, and they really actually enjoy writing a story with me and say, well, this is the piece of what I remember.
2: Which is great. Right. It gives you that additional insight. I used to say to my mother and my husband, stop practicing on me. (laughs) Right. And, you know, I have to say, thank goodness they were not storytellers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Suzanne Schmidt, thank you so much for your stories and for talking about them.
0: Thank you so much for uh, having me here to talk about them.
2: And that's it for this episode of Stories from the Stage. I'm Liz Chang
1: and I am Patricia Alvarado-Núñez. We will be back soon, and in the meantime, you can hear more memorable stories at
2: wordchannel.org. Share them with people you care about.